0: Pacifica Radio,
1: this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing the globe 5 days a week as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com but Brad has got the week off. I'm Angie Quero and the only reason I agreed to do this was because it was supposed to be a quiet week news wise. Brad, I would like a word with you when you get home. Such a full plate, honestly. So let's get to some of the headlines. Reactions are all over the map. No pun intended. To word that North Korea has successfully tested a missile that could reach Alaska. Mind you, all of the following assumes that Kim Jong-un's claim that the Hwasong-14 was tested, and it was a successful test. He's roughly as reliable as Donald Trump, so take that with whatever grain of salt you care to. The Independent of London quotes David Wright of the Union of Concerned Scientists, saying if the reports were true, the missile would have a maximum range of around roughly 4,160 miles on a standard trajectory. That range, he said, would not be enough to reach the lower 48 states or the large islands of Hawaii, but would allow it to reach all of Alaska. Donald Trump's reaction, of course, was to get on Twitter immediately if we are attacked Rest assured, our president will have social media covered. That's kind of a mixed blessing. Given his access and authority over world-decimating technology, Twitter is probably the best play for him. Anyway, Trump tweeted smacking China around for its growing trade with North Korea. Right on point. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson wants, quote, global action. Any country that hosts North Korean guest workers provides any economic or military benefits – or fails to fully implement U.N. Security Council resolutions, is aiding and abetting a dangerous regime. When the Pentagon chimed in to underline the U.S. commitment to backing South Korea and Japan, South Korea and the U.S. cooperated on a missile drill the next day. And that was more or less an answer to Russia and China, who had asked the U.S. to please take a seat and breathe for a moment. In Business Insider, there was this this almost relaxed take from Alex Lockie. I found this interesting. Here's a bit from his column. The wide majority of Americans have lived their entire lives under constant threat of nuclear annihilation. North Korea's ICBM, though destabilizing and deeply troubling, exists as a mechanism to guarantee the stability of Kim Jong-un's regime. If Kim ever decides to fire a missile at the U.S., The U.S. will track it, fire interceptors, and a barrage of its own, more reliable and powerful nuclear weapons in response likely before North Korea's missile even enters the atmosphere. North Korea's new weapons capability will likely lead to increased diplomatic pressure and sanctions on the country, but don't expect a nuclear exchange. To finish off his quote here, if North Korea had been intent on nuking the U.S., they could have hid a mobile missile launcher on a container ship or smuggled a nuclear weapon inside the U.S. without having to spend years and millions of dollars perfecting a missile. So reassuring, I'm almost reluctant to believe it, but let's hope he's got some right on his side there. There are many more dire takes out there. The best breakdown of the whole thing I can recommend for you is in the New York Times. Look for the detailed analysis from Motoko Rich. It's it's a nice sweep of past, present, and future considerations on the whole topic. Now, the Times editorial board is urging Trump to sit down for actual negotiations with North Korea, as distasteful as he finds that. Now, even if he took them up on that idea, how well could that actually turn out? With the combo of Trump and Tillerson on our side of the table— Messi does not even begin to describe what would happen in that room. Would you like something lighter? Over the weekend, Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California lit into HUD Secretary Ben Carson. The Hill reports that after recounting his sins in detail, she warned about his coming testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. Quote, if he thinks I'm going to give him a pass, I'll take his apart. (laughs) I love me some Maxine I want to clone that woman now let, let's go to one of the big stories as much for mainstream media and social media as it is for the world of you know journalism academic journalism what does journalism and what do its ethics di- detail dictate I'm trying to say what do journalistic ethics dictate when a company is essentially reporting on itself and that is the situation that CNN found itself in you you know the video that Trump tweeted around. And there's a human being with a head bouncing around. that says CNN. and He bashes it and he takes it down. And yeah, it got all kinds of coverage. Well, CNN found out who was behind that video. Not Trump. Trump tweeted it, but (laughs) didn't have the ability to actually make something like that. And his minders probably would have grabbed the keyboard out of his hands if he tried. So someone else had done it. And once they put the story out there... With the name of this person redacted, the hashtag CNN blackmail started to go around. CNN blackmail. Did CNN blackmail a 15-year-old into silence? After finding out that he's the one who created the video, CNN published the fact that it was not going to name this person. And they put an emphasis on that person's apology, how responsibly he took this upon himself and said he wouldn't do it anymore. His post that has now disappeared from Reddit was exemplary. You know, all those cases we have of non-apology apologies, I'm sorry if, sorry you were offended. No, this person talked about how important it was not to pull this stuff on social media. He talked about the addictive nature of getting onto the Internet and trolling, about becoming more and more of an ass than you ever thought you would be. And he encouraged everyone who was inclined to fall into that kind of action, as he did, to think hard about the repercussions and about the feelings of the people against whom they're targeted. That's what appeared on Reddit. And based on the strength and articulation, (laughs) she articulates, of that apology, CNN says, you know what? We're not going to publish his name. And as long as he sticks to this, we're not going to publish his name. And it was that bit that has now been spun into CNN blackmailing the guy, that there's this inherent threat that if he shows up again and pulls the same stuff, that they feel free to name him. Granted, every journalist I saw reacting to this noted that that was an unusual choice. It was unusual for CNN to write, CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change, after noting, that the person in question is a private citizen after noting that he apologized and after noting that he promised not to keep flooding the Internet with this kind of thing. Most journalists acknowledge it is unusual for them to have said that. But does that equate to blackmail? Now, here's how these kind of things get started. First of all, there is no indication, no reliable source that says this Poor, oppressed, former Redditor, he's gone from Reddit now, is 15 years old. Who knows where that got started? We know that everyone, everyone to whom it can be tracked came from the right. CNN says this is a middle aged guy. We don't know where this got started that he's 15 years old, which of course makes him much more of a victim, except he's not. He's a grown man. And CNN forced him to take his post down? Uh, rewind on that one. He took his post down after CNN made an inquiry, but before he talked to them. On his own initiative, he took that post down. So he stripped that all away. The only problematic thing, the only truly problematic thing left, is the phrasing CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. It was, in fact, for all we can tell, a simple statement of fact. They are not going to be held to an earlier decision not to reveal who he is based on specific behaviors that have been documented. They do not want that in any sense to be interpreted as a promise that if he returns to those very behaviors that made him a viable story, that he won't once again be a viable story. And at that point, they reserve the right to identify him. You may not like the way they put it. This isn't blackmail. And if you were inclined to believe it was blackmail, then you look at the people who are contending it, the same people who contended this is a 15-year-old, the same people who contended that CNN forced him to take the post down. And look at that lack of credibility and see that those are the same people who are tap dancing all over the place and calling it blackmail. And, hey, look over there. There's actually stuff happening with the health care bill, North Korea. Putin trip coming up this week. the environment. In other words, having spent the time to deconstruct a little bit, that's about all the time it merits. That's really all the time it merits. Some other stuff to get to, oh, later this hour, by the way, I'm going to play you some cuts from Jane Mayer, and this is in reaction to some news, good news in the news today about the environment. Something positive actually happened for the environment in the era of Trump. It's coming up later in the show. But we do have some other headlines to go through. And this one, this is touchy. Let me, let me qualify myself on this one, okay? My dad died with Alzheimer's. My mother had coma-induced dementia. Everything I'm saying from this point on has nothing to do with mocking the disabled of those who are mentally compromised. Not. Not making fun of that, okay? I know the pain behind this. So when I contend that you have to look at Donald Trump... And consider the possibility of dementia. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, about the, uh, you know, the 25th Amendment and whether he's he's fit to rule, et cetera, et cetera. It's important to try to look at both facts, which are things, you know, you're going to put together over time, patterns, et cetera, and the occasional anecdotal incident to try to measure whether this person is indeed suffering from some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's or other compromising brain what do you want to call it? Condition, injury, whatever. There is a phenomenon with Alzheimer's called sundowning. Sundowning is what occurs when the day has gone too long and the person with compromised brain capacity starts to falter. The person who is not rested any longer, who's reaching the end of their energy and emotional tether. That's when the forgetfulness starts. That's when the confusion sets in. That's when the the non sequiturs start coming out of nowhere conversationally. And once you learn to watch that, okay, time to try to get him into bed. Time for her to sit down on the couch and rest for a while. That's sundowning. Sundowning is measured by the clock. At the end of the day, you see failure happening here. Now, I have contended for a long time, and I'm happy to see this being picked up by a number of people in both the social media and the mainstream media realms, there is some arguable anecdotal evidence of sundowning with Donald Trump. Anecdotal. I have not graphed this out. I have not run it by a doctor. But take a look at his infamous tweet timeline. Look at his tweets. Look at the timing of the famous Kofefe tweet, which not only didn't make any sense, which was gibberish to begin with and then ended in a word that doesn't exist and then stayed up for hours. Not retracted, not deleted, not checked, not explained. And then the next day, kind of a ha-ha, I was joking, caught you type of thing. It's those kind of tweets that, to my eye, tend to start in the later part of the day. I see hints, I don't want to call it evidence, I see hints Of sundowning in his verbal and mental capacities. All of that said, there is video making the rounds of Donald Trump, who was returning home for the July 4th holiday, getting off the plane and walking away from the waiting limousine. You find it online. It's everywhere. Not doctored, real video, walking away. He's not walking to someone else. He's not walking with purpose or with aim. He's aimlessly moving away from his anticipated and obvious target. And someone points him back on course, and the Donald kicks in, and he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, limousine's over there." Just how the body language. Oh yeah, I missed that. Well, the limousine was right there. right there. You know, John Legum, who I admire a lot, does some really excellent work. And he says there's that the 25th Amendment movement is a non-starter. It's just not going to happen because of the logistics that have to happen between the time the public is requesting that we please look at this man's mental fitness and what it would take to actually get it examined, what it would take to get it through the cabinet, what it would mean. And I, I respect him. And that reads rationally to me. And I hope to talk to him in the very near future about that. In the meantime, that doesn't negate these mounting anecdotes and, boy, I wish I could identify these. I cannot. And some very well-informed voices who make reference to the concern in the White House about his slipping, about Donald Trump's slipping. There have been allegations that the left is conspiring to spread falsehoods about Donald Trump, that it's a way to target him, it's a way to take him down. Now, how would that look different than right now, when in fact, I can just tell you, I have to ask you to judge for yourself, I consider myself a person of integrity, who, yes, does not like Donald Trump, but also is a concerned, loyal, patriotic citizen who says, this man is dangerous. This man is mentally compromised. He doesn't suffer from occasional bouts of depression. He doesn't suffer from, I don't know, a sleeping disorder. We all have these things. But he appears to have a severity of mental dropout, mental failure that compromises his ability to serve. Now, you can tell me I'm part of some vast conspiracy set out to give our honorable president a bad name and unfairly question his acuity, and it wouldn't look, any, wouldn't look any different than right now. I could make a very convincing conspiracist, I guess. You can decide that I'm just spreading naughty tales to make the president look bad. I leave that up to you. I think this man is severely compromised. I think there are people in the White House who know that. I think there are people in the White House who are making a choice between letting that be known on some level, secretly to the press, openly to constituents. However, they're making the choice between that and either political power or fear. They're either afraid to come clean about that, be it for their family, be it for themselves, be it for their career, be it for their credibility, whatever, but they're afraid. Or, and this is the really horrendous consideration, they have too much to gain by leaving this increasingly mentally decrepit man in power. And that means, my friends, that they are choosing their power over you and me and us and the country. If that is the case, they are embracing power over us. Speaking of the White House while we're there, this is not a stunner. (laughs) If you wanted to be shocked, wait for the next story. The pay gap between male and female White House staffers has more than tripled in the first year of the Trump administration. This is according to an analysis by an economist from the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank, is going going right out there with the story and saying the pay gap has more than tripled in the first year of the Trump administration. The Washington Post wrote this up. You can find it there or any other number of other places. The median Female White House employee is drawing a salary of 72000 and X compared to the median male salary of 115000 Perry writes for the AEI, the typical female staffer in Trump's White House earns 63.2 cents on the dollar of a typical male staffer. You know what the pay gap is nationally? 17%. You know what it is in the White House now? 37%. But he loves him some women, huh? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. More on Trump, by the way. He's headed off to Poland, right? Well, according to the Polish media, the government there has promised the White House a reception of cheering crowds. The AP caught this and wrote it up. Yes, you can't have Donald Trump going somewhere if his adoring throngs will not be there, paid, misrepresented, whatever. They need to be there. The White House is not responding to the AP request for a comment on those reports. To make good on the pledge, so the story goes, ruling party lawmakers and pro-government activists plan to bus in groups from the provinces to hear his speech. This guy's scary. Of course, his aides are worried about how he's going to perform for Putin. And this is with the New York Times His top aides do not know precisely what Mr. Trump will decide to say or do when he meets Putin on the sidelines of the Group of 20 economic summit gathering in Germany. That is what most worries, this is directly from the Times, that is what most worries his advisers and officials across his administration as he embarks Wednesday on his second foreign trip to Warsaw, then to Hamburg. They're scared. They're scared of their own man. I don't blame them. Coming up around the corner, it's Jane Mayer here on the Bradcast. I'm Angie Currow. Stick around.
0: Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves.
1: I'm Angie Caro. Did you see the environment got a little win in the courts? Here's the scoop, as reported in the Atlantic. Under President Obama, the Environmental Protection Agency created a rule holding oil companies accountable. All right, we see the problem there already. They're holding them accountable for methane emissions. So these companies would have to measure their emissions and check the leaks and make sure their equipment is in ecologically responsible condition. That was that was what the EPA put together under President Obama. Well. The scary anti-human life corporate puppet master, puppet, not master, at the head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, tried at the behest of his masters to put off implementation of that rule while he worked to undermine it. Monday of this week, the federal appeals court in D.C. said, nuh They, in fact, called Pruitt's actions arbitrary, capricious, and excessive. Very nice. Robinson Meyer at The Atlantic has a cautiously optimistic analysis of this and what it might mean for other pro-environment vestiges of the Obama administration. Check that out. Now, for my own show, In Deep, I talked earlier this year with Jane Mayer, and the occasion was the paperback release of her bestseller, Dark Money. New material included there, by the way. And we were talking about how dark money messaging kind of percolates down into larger discourse, and that explains a lot about every discussion about the environment, about why anyone would back an administration who is trying to decimate the planet for profit. When we talk climate change, when we talk methane release, when we talk all of that, we're talking about a conversation that is unbearably tainted by dark money. So I asked her about that. And as you hear this whole thing, we're going to segue from there and talk about George Soros, Steve Bannon, and Robert Mercer. So from a couple months ago, here's my conversation with Jane Mayer. If we take the messaging on climate change, if you were to say flat out, you know, here is Coke Incorporated or the large Coke machine, and they are one of the biggest producers of waste and pollution in the world, and we want you to listen to them about global warming and, and pollution and the environment, everybody would just say no. But the way the message has been massaged throughout... It's no longer really associated with them per se. So can you take a message That's like a climate good, change? And- a
2: very good point. And I think that part of what interested me about them was that they were so covert. The first story I wrote on the Cokes in The New Yorker in 2010 was called Covert Operations. And they were so under the radar, you could barely see their money, you know, and it was very hard to trace it. And so why were they so secretive about it? Well, I think that they knew That, as you say, if you knew that the major force that was saying global climate change is not real were the people who benefit most from carbon pollution, you might say, ah, well, of course they're saying that, and I don't believe it. It it undercuts their own credibility. But by hiding the money trail, they've been able to get a lot more traction. So instead, what they do is they fund denialism. There's a, a tremendous amount of money that's gone into think tanks that turn out papers that say that there's doubt about whether global warming is real, and even if it is real, maybe it's not caused by humans. And if it's real and caused by humans, maybe it's a great thing. There are even these papers that I've read that suggest that, you know, it'll bring us a better time when there'll be more arable land. And one of the most appalling things, actually, (laughs) that I came across was at the Smithsonian in Washington, there was a, a big exhibit that was funded by David Koch, and it had a game that kids could play about how people adapt. And it said, maybe if there's global warming people will start to get smaller and sort of bend over and they can live underground. Um, And, and, and I thought, Oh God, this is really not the message you want to give your kids, you know, but, um, but this is the thing there it is at the Smithsonian and it's funded in an exhibit by David Koch. And there are think tanks all over the place spewing out this message and, Take a look at our Congress. It is now dominated by Republicans in both the House and the Senate who refuse to admit that climate change is real. And you have someone at the head of the EPA who is saying that climate change is not, he doesn't necessarily believe that it's real or that it's caused by humans. That is such a minority view even in this country at this point. It's not a democratically decided opinion. It's an opinion decided by big money.
1: Mm A number of people are asking about the connections between the Kochs and Donald Trump. They didn't immediately take a liking to each other.
2: But now they seem to be getting along a little bit better. Can you track that for us? There's a little bit of a rapprochement. They're not really made for each other, I don't think. (laughs) 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 Uh, They're both very strong-minded in their own way. And the truth is that the... The Koch family looked at 2016 as what was gonna be its crowning glory. They had by then built this huge machine all across the country, and they had set aside $889 million to spend in the 2016 election cycle, which is just an unheard of amount of money. It was coming from themselves and this group of 400 or 450 other multimillionaires and billionaires. So they thought it was their moment. And they were going to wait till there was a Republican nominee and then help get him elected and defeat Hillary Clinton. But of all the possible Republican nominees, the one guy who they really didn't like won the nomination. And so they were stuck and they didn't know what to do. And despite the fact that we tend to think of them as all-knowing and, you know, pulling all the levers, in fact, they're often in disarray and they really weren't sure what they were going to do. And they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected and they got afraid about how much they could oppose her because they were going to have to work with her and they have the second largest private company in America. So they aimed all of their efforts at taking over Congress, and they put money into, I think it's 42 House races and 19 Senate races. They won most of them, and the Freedom Caucus that you hear about in Congress could easily be called the Coke Caucus. They have elected so many of those members, but they're stuck with Donald Trump, and he actually made fun of them. When all of his rivals in the uh, Republican primaries went to the Koch group to try to get money, he tweeted out, puppets, anyone? So um, he was, you know, definitely not paying respect to them in the form that they expected. You talk about the Cokes being in the background, and just recently in New
1: Yorker, you profiled the Mercers who are even further in the background and want nothing to do with any public profile at all. It's just interesting to watch the intermixing going on.
2: Well, so the Mercers are, uh, Bob Mercer is a hedge fund I'm not sure he's that he's actually a billionaire, but he's close. Uh, he makes about $135 million a year. And he was allied with the Kochs. He was part of their organization. But he and his daughter Rebecca, she's in her 40s and, and pretty much the kind of the lead political person in the family, they got fed up with the Kochs because they didn't think they were winning enough after 2012. Um, they'd put a lot of money into the Koch group and they wanted Romney to be elected. And when he was defeated, they thought, we can do this better. So so they're kind of like mini me's of the Cokes. They've built up their own organization. And it, as of last August, they threw their weight and their money. Behind Trump, And so they've become the biggest money in some ways behind Trump. So you've got now rival billionaires, rogue billionaires warring each other a little bit. Um, You've got the Kochs who are pushing the Freedom Caucus and pushing the Republican Party way far to the right. And then you've got the Mercers who are with Trump. So they actually came to blows with each other a little bit over the health care bill because the Mercers were supporting Trump's version. The Kochs were fighting it not because they thought it was a terrible thing to take health care benefits away from 21 million people, but because it didn't take enough away. They wanted to see big government completely wiped out, and they don't want any kind of health care program. So there's a fight on between the far, far right and the far right, basically, and and billionaires behind both versions.
1: I want to draw the connective line. Uh, but you were talking about the weirdness that some of these people believe, and the Mercers are no exception. They think that Bill and Hillary Clinton are murderers, literally, literally. murderers. Right. And I just want to read directly from your New Yorker article. The Mercers became devoted supporters of Arthur Robinson, biochemist, sheep rancher, and climate change denialist. The family has given at least $1.6 in donations to his Oregon Institute of Science and Medicine. Some was used to buy freezers in which Robinson is storing some 14,000 samples of human urine. Robinson said by studying the urine, he will find new ways of extending the lifespan. You wonder how these people can
2: get up and out in the morning, and instead they're, <laughs> they're kind of running the country. <laughs> no, it's true. The The oddness of these people is is really stunning sometimes, and I I often think that... If they ran for office, just as the Kochs tried to do, they'd get nowhere because they are so eccentric to be use a nice term, and yet because they have so much money, they're able to exert a, a kind of an oversized influence on politics from the wings. You know, so you get these these strange policies that, such as their global warming views, or I think one of the more alarming thing that the Mercers believed in that that really worried me as I was reporting on that was that they believed that low-level nuclear radiation is good for people's health. Bob Mercer, the hedge fund co-chairman, argued with friends in the hedge fund that it really, there was kind of a silver lining to nuclear disasters, nuclear war, and other kinds of nuclear disasters, because he thinks that while the blast zone isn't good for people's health. Um, In the outskirts of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, people's health was enhanced by the low-level radiation. I'm not a scientist, but I did call the um, National Academy of Science to ask if there's any truth in this, and it this way, they, they certainly don't think so. Um, so, so but, and, it, and who would care? Like you, it wouldn't matter. And it wouldn't matter that they want to pay for 14,000 samples of human urine in a refrigerator either, except for the fact that they're whispering in our president's ear. And that's where it gets dicey. I'm Angie Cora talking to Jane Mayer about her book, Dark Money. I
1: knew this one was going to come up, so I'll let you tackle it. George Soros. Do you consider George Soros to be a source of dark money? And you do get that every time.
2: I do get that. And I actually, just for the record, I wrote a story that was 10,000 words long on George Soros, which was the same length as the one on the Cokes. And it was written in 2004, which was the year when George Soros was really trying to buy the presidency. And that was the year that he put more money into it than he has since. And so I tried to write about this whole dynamic when he was really throwing it around. So he gives some money to groups that are non-transparent, meaning dark money groups. But there's a big difference to me as a reporter about Soros. And it's not just his ideology. It's that his whole sort of crusade is about pro-transparency. And so So he's very open about where he's spending it's not this kind of covert operation thing that you get with the Kochs and he's also very open about what he believes in so when I did the profile of Soros I could interview him and I could press him on his views and get his life story and describe what he's trying to do when I tried to interview the Kochs not only did they not give me an interview, they didn't cooperate even with fact checking at the New Yorker. You could, you could call up their people and ask what day they were, the birthday was and what year and they wouldn't tell you. And the same is true for the Mercers, who I tried to interview over and over again. They absolutely give no interviews. So these are, I think there's a real difference between families that are pouring money into American politics that won't even tell you what they want or articulate what their vision is, what they're trying to do with that money. And those, you know, like Soros, I mean, he'll talk to reporters and he'll, he writes so much that I think probably it's tiresome to people. Mm. But anyway, so that I, I, I see some difference there. He paid you to say that, right? That he's tiresome? <laughs> no.
1: A <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, question from the audience. Do the Kochs have any connection to the Russian money laundering surrounding Trump?
2: <sighs> you know, this is yet another challenge for investigative reporters following this Russian money. Not that I know of. And there's been stories suggesting that the Mercers are somehow tied in and their their yacht was anchored next to one of the Russian oligarchs' yachts. And I, I have seen n- no no evidence of that. You know, I think all of us who are reporters right now are poring over this trying to figure out what the story is. But I don't know of any dark conspiracy there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
1: don't know if you know Notice today, the head of Blackwater is now connected to the Russian story as well. And of course, Blackwater and political money are very deeply entrenched.
2: And if you want to become a conspiracy theorist, the head of Blackwater, Eric Prince, his sisters, Betsy DeVos, who is our education secretary. So that ought to be enough to get the conspiracy <laughs> mongering going out there. I don't know. Sometimes it all feels like six degrees of separation, you know. Um, but it's hard to follow money in this world as a reporter. And it's especially hard when you start getting into other countries. I was trying to figure out some of the money flow. And, you you know, until you get something like the Panama Papers, where suddenly there's this document dump and you can see it all, you hit a lot of dead ends. It's 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 gonna take a while, I think, before the press unravels that whole Russian thing. What's your thought about the ACLU not necessarily opposing
1: Citizens United? You'd think that they and anything coke related are kind of necessarily at odds?
2: That's a great question. Nobody ever asks about that. I actually think that the ACLU is in the wrong place on this issue. And I have heard that they had some big internal fights about it. But as an organization that backs free speech, they're backing the idea that spending money is speech. And I think they went down the wrong road there. I really do. The counterbalancing argument about spending money in politics is that (laughs) Against using it just as speech, there's an issue of corruption, too, Mm -hmm. and there really ought to be some kind of balancing thing where if you're bribing politicians, which in essence what it's become is sort of legalized bribery, it's going to really hurt the democracy. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like the ACLU is in the wrong place on this issue. I'm Angie Carroll with a very
1: impressive list of questions from our audience here at Kepler's, more than one bringing up Bannon. There's an interesting progression between Mercer, Bannon, Koch, and Bannon. So can you follow his first his taking over at Breitbart, which he did when Andrew Breitbart died, and then how he ended up in such a position as he's in today.
2: Well, in some ways, I feel as if it's the backstory to how we got Trump. Bannon is who I actually got to interview recently. So that was fascinating in its own right. But he linked up forces with this family, the Mercers, the hedge fund family um, that has a ton of money, very far right, and was frustrated that its money wasn't really having an impact. And Bannon helped them figure out how to really instrumentalize that money and have an impact in politics. First thing he did was he urged them to put $10 million into Breitbart, which became the platform, as Bannon has said himself, for the alt-right in this country. And it popularized a very different kind of right-wing politics that's national, you know, economic nationalism. It really became a force in politics. Um, He also got them to put money into something called the Government Accountability Institute. It's a small organization that's almost completely funded by the Mercer family and which was run also by Bannon. And it created a book, Clinton Cash, which very much drove the narrative that Hillary Clinton was a crook during the last campaign. And Bannon is a a very smart guy, and he realized that that it's not enough to just have a right-wing press because that's only going to be able to influence its corner of American politics. What he was aiming for was to influence the mainstream press. And with Clinton Cash, what they did was after they created this book, they handed a a copy of it off early to the New York Times – which then used it as the basis for a front-page story that raised tons of questions about whether Hillary Clinton was corrupt. And that was just a home run for Bannon. It it pretty much, once the New York Times buys into a narrative, that is the beginning of the mainstream media, and it kind of sets the direction. and And that book continued to push story after story about Clinton being corrupt, and then they put out uh, Bannon and the Mercers co-produced a movie version of Clinton Cash, which came out and debuted in Cannes in um, in 2016. And then they, the third thing that Bannon really got them to invest in was a data company called Cambridge Analytica, which creates a kind of a propaganda machine. It is a Big data company that sends out messages through social media and kind of helps push voters in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, those three prongs were very smart. They, and, and they were Bannon's ideas. So what do you think are the implications of having him
1: continuing in the president's office? And I don't know if you perceive this the same way I do, that he's gotten quieter and quieter as far as his public profile. But he still
2: is, you know, the eyes and ears of the money in the White House. Well, so what happened, I didn't really, I guess I didn't finish. So they built up these, these organizations. And then eventually the, the, the Mercer family threw its weight and its money behind Trump last August. And Rebecca Mercer told Trump, your campaign's a mess. You're going to have to fix it and bring in better people. Take my people. And that was Steve Bannon, who became the, the executive chairman of the Trump campaign. And Kellyanne Conway, who had been running a PAC for the Mercer family, became the the uh, campaign manager. And Steve Bossie, who had been running an organization that the Mercers funded, Citizens United, um, became the deputy campaign manager. So Trump, in the final months of his campaign, was surrounded by the Mercers people. Mm-hmm. And Bannon was one of them. And then Bannon, of course, comes into the White House and is Trump. Um, strategic advisor. Is he being more quiet? I I mean, I think anybody who works with Trump knows that he doesn't want somebody else to be getting all the attention. So it's it's a dangerous thing to stick your head up too high. But he, you know, I think... It's, 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 he talks to reporters. I mean, I was really pleased he talked to me and he talks to other reporters too. Mm -hmm. He's got a kind of a fascinating and somewhat terrifying worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, He's become enamored of this book that sort of describes cycles of American history that suggests that we're in a cycle right now that's heading towards possible clash of civilizations and world war. So it's not really a very um, happy outlook that he's bringing to the White House.
1: Do I understand correctly that he's okay with that? that to accelerate uh, some kind of cataclysm so that he can take advantage of it? I
2: don't know if that's fair. I mean, I think he would probably argue that he sees this on the horizon And maybe he thinks what he's doing is averting it by—I don't really know. I haven't had the chance to—you know, I was talking to him about the Mercers, and what he said about the Mercers was that they, more than any other funders in America, had laid the foundation for the Trump revolution, and he was their strategist. So, you know, he gives them a lot of credit, or you might say blame, um, if you don't want to, you know, support Trump. But he thinks that their role was really significant
1: questions coming in about the fight over Gorsuch trying to get the Supreme Court seat and whether you see any fingerprints of the Kochs or any more of the money machine on what's happening with that battle.
2: So there's a ton of dark money involved in this fight. Um, And there are a number of groups that don't tell at all where the money's coming from, who are pushing for Gorsuch to be confirmed. And one of them has had a lot of Coke connections in the past, the Judicial Crisis Network. So you may see ads on TV from it. You can't tell for sure um, where the money's coming from because it's a dark money group. But in the past, it has had a lot of Coke connections it's a conversation with Jay
1: Mayer from me in May, marking the paperback release of Dark Money. Coming up next on the broadcast, connecting the dots between a taco salad, Victorian England, and Chris Christie. Really, Chris Christie. Stick around. This is the broadcast. <laughs> I'm Angie Coro. This is the Bradcast. Brad is taking the week off, along with Desi. I've had a few experiences and impressions this week that have all kind of coalesced into one line of thought, and I thought it would be of interest to you. It's about the future of America. Happy birthday, by the way. And what it could mean for us if we don't let this slide into a more and more cleaved class system, if we don't halt that slide, stop it now, so we don't all become either the have-alls or the have-nothings. And this all starts in a very well-to-do suburb of San Francisco called Menlo Park, right next to Atherton. Atherton is one of the richest conclaves in America, and Menlo Park is essentially their downtown area. So, walking around there. I can't afford to live there, by the way, before you ask. No, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I was walking through there, and there's, there's an Uno Mas taco burrito store. So I go in there to get a salad. And in this high-end suburb, around a holiday Everything else is, is pretty busy, and Uno Mas was basically empty. I go in there, and I smile. I'm, I smile at everybody. I go in there, and I smile at the guy, and I ask about their taco salad, and he's, he's wordless. He's almost surly. Never really said a word the whole time I was there. Um, I always tip. I spent so long in, in food service. I always tip. So despite the fact that I was getting pretty cruddy service, I you know placed my order. I gave him money. He gave me cash. I put a tip in the jar. And he remained surly. And briefly, I thought to myself, come on, I just tipped you. And I thought, wait a minute. He's not a performing chihuahua. You don't put money in, so he dances. If you want to give him a tip, you give him a tip. So kind of backed off of that one. But uh, hand me my salad wordlessly. Go outside. Don't eat much of it. And go back in and I asked for a container. There are only two guys here, neither of whom has cracked a smile or uttered a sound. And I asked the second guy, "Could I have a carryout container?" And I showed him my salad, which was largely untouched, big old taco bowl. And he hands me this little sandwich container. And I think, you know, I'm not even gonna not even going to engage." So I smooshed my salad into my container, and I went away and I thought, yeah, you know, here on my receipt it says, "Let us know how your experience is. I'm going to let you know how my experience was." And then I think to myself, well, what kind of life do these guys have? Here they are, you know, 10 minutes north of Stanford, right at the north end of Silicon Valley, darn close to San Francisco. Nobody can afford to live here anyway. What are these guys at UnaMAs making? You know, if they're lucky, they're making 15 an hour. Lucky, lucky, And I doubt that's the case. No slam on UnaMas. I don't know, but the fact is at 15 an hour you can't live there anyway. So I briefly considered their personal situation, I backed off of that. that night. I found a three-part documentary online about Victorian England and the servant class. And this was hosted by an historian. They didn't say flat out, but it was very clear that this series of hours was in response to the glamorization of the servant era, Victorian era, the upstairs, the downstairs, the Downton Abbey, the deep entrenched personal lives of these people in their various classes. And this was an honest, no-holds-barred, very detailed look at what it really was like to have a servant class. It goes into the progression of the servant class from people who were treated as individuals and well-regarded. It showed older pre-Victorian pictures of servants dressed in couture and powdered wigs and, and looking like lords and ladies of the Abbey themselves, to the later years, when here they all are in identical uniforms with identical haircuts, and it mirrored the progression of the servants from someone who was hired to perform a number of services and was respected as a provider thereof to being wordless, faceless bots. That served their masters. There was one case cited in the memoirs of a former servant where if he dared to happen to be in the hallway when the master or the mistress passed, his job was to press himself face first against the wall so as not to be seen. The hours these people worked were amazing. And this is where it gets really fascinating because the upper middle classes looked upon what the peerage was doing, and they wanted to echo what was going on with the royalty and with the landed gentry. So they started looking for servants for themselves. They didn't have the roomy, although pretty decrepit, accommodations for a serving class that the uppers had. So they started putting these newly acquired servants in little squirrel holes up in the attic or down in the, in the basement with no light, and they couldn't afford to buy someone to look after the carriage and someone to stow the coal and someone to cook the meals and someone to dust. So all of these chores, which would keep an army of servants up from morning till night, would fall upon two or three people. And then it gets worse. The lower middle classes decided they too wanted servants. They had even less room than the upper middle class. They had less money. So they hired what was called the maid of all work, conceivably the most trodden upon person in this whole scenario. The maids of all work did exactly that. They did everything, including cleaning slop jars. And that's, let's not go into that too much. Whew. But uh, the maid of all work could be as young as 10 years old because the half nots in England had no real choice but to put their children out to work. So someone who is called upon to have the lamps lit when the mistress of the house gets up and to have the fireplaces cleaned out and have it roaring and have the hot water there for tea and make sure that the breakfast is properly on its way up and clear the dishes out afterward and wipe down the tables and make sure the horses are fed, blah, blah, blah. That person could be 10 or 12 years old. They cited the case of one very young teenager. I think she was 14. And she was put in charge of four kids. It took all this to keep afloat what was considered you know the grandeur of England the the royalty the gentry to everybody in De brett's peerage all those people upstairs convinced a frightening number of the people downstairs that not only was this their lot in life their fate but that by accepting that fate they were supporting the greatness of their country by doing all the scut work by becoming anonymous by losing their personhood, by living only to serve, for a place to live that was not guaranteed to be so much as clean, for an amount of money that certainly didn't allow them to own a home or start their own family with any security, none of that was considered their due because they were the servant class. Now, there's another scary echo of America in that documentary. Those who were below the peerage class didn't, on the whole, look at this as injustice. They looked up as servants and said, I want me some of that. And that's what we're doing now. As incomes drop for so many families, security gone for so many families, food charities feeding more and more people, shelters overloaded with the homeless. What's at the top of the charts? Real housewives? The Kardashians? The antics of the Trumps? We're all enamored of that upper class, of what we might be if luck goes our way. And we still, on the whole, most Americans, go ahead, check the polls, check with the sociologists, most Americans still believe that we are a class mobile society and we have the chance to get up there if we just stick to it. Now, the luck is no longer going to go our way than it is the way of that lower-middle-class subject of the queen in Victorian England, they could get a little girl and work her to death, and that still wouldn't make them royalty. That's the way it was set up. You can aspire to so much, but no more. You can use the moneyed class as your role models, but don't expect to arrive there. That is not how royalty works. And, And in a sense, we're even more clueless. Americans believe they can win the lottery. They buy into class mobility. Class mobility never existed to the extent that we've heard of it, and it's less credible every day. Victorian servitude is glamorized now. Americans pulling themselves up from drudgery the success is likewise glamorized. It's as damaging here today as real servitude was in 1800s England. And that brings us to Chris Christie. You heard here and everywhere else, and I'm sure you've seen the pictures of His Royal Highness Christie colonizing an entire state beach that had been closed off to the peons. Now, what you may not have heard from the beach residents, they were forced out under threat of arrest. And for this, we go to the New Jersey Star Ledger. Christie tans while island beach homeowners burn. Six families were ordered out of their island beach homes under the threat of arrest. These residents predate Christie by half a century. They were grandfathered to him when the state bought the island to make it a park. They're there seasonally. They don't get any services or utilities. They bring in their own water. They bring generators. They've been home for the summer there more than 60 years. So they were told that the park might close, but they, the leaseholders, could come in limited to two people per house. So they packed everything up for the summer, as they have been for 60 years, and they went there to each house. Six families are remaining from the original grandfathered clauses. And lo and behold, here comes the knock on the door, They have to leave under threat of arrest. And we're going to go back to this column now in the New Jersey paper. In true Nero fiddling while Rome burns fashion, there was Governor Chris Christie lounging in a beach chair Sunday with his wife and son nearby. Christie said he didn't get any sun before he helicoptered back to Trenton because he was wearing a hat. And he bristled when asked about his vacation stay. Run for governor and you can have a residence there too, he said. But the families that aren't governors, got run out of the homes they built and paid for. The fact that Chris Christie feels absolutely no shame is telling. The attitude of Donald Trump is the same. Use the little people. Promise them the world. In the case of the military, assure them in between golf games that their sacrifice to the country is appreciated and part of the natural order of things. They should be proud. Well, they should be proud. But they also should not be played for suckers, and more Americans every year are taught to blame their lessening quality of life and the lightening of their wallets on those of their own class or below them, because the landed gentry is what they aspire to join. They can't blame them. It's the natural order of things. So to bring this full circle, I, I'm not calling or emailing Uno Mas Corporate. Maybe the guys who waited on me were having a bad day. Maybe they were terrible people. I have no idea. It's probably somewhere in between. But with my little trek from uh, the taco salad through Victorian England that night to washing up in the beach in New Jersey over the holiday, I'm going to leave those guys alone. They have had enough classism for one week. And that is a wrap on the Bradcast. I'm back with you tomorrow, anticipating the mother and child reunion between Trump and Putin, looking further into voting issues, and until Brad and Desi get back generally running amok. Until we talk again, good luck, world.